On today's show, our guest is Max Ryerson. Max was born in Belgium and started coding at the age of just six years old. He started working in the IT industry when he was just 16, and by the time he was 18, he was running his own successful award-winning web design business. Max enjoyed success early on with a social network that he built for high net worth individuals. Back in the day, he was up against Facebook and the likes, and he managed to gain enough traction to scale the business to more than 5 million euro in just two years. Shortly after that, the business was sold. Max has seen and participated in it all in the IT space over the last 20 years. He was there in the early days building websites in HTML, and as you will hear, he was part of the revolution to develop social media. Max has held senior IT positions and marketing positions for some of Australia's largest companies, and he's been part of all sorts of startups, including digital advertising, social media, and wearables. In his business, Stratforce Group, Max helps to keep other businesses ahead of the ever-evolving digital curve. His latest venture will make you laugh, it will make you think, and it will give you a glimpse into the future like you've never heard or thought of before. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Max Ryerson. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Max. Welcome to the show, mate. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Rob. It's really good to be here. Cool, cool. Well, I'd like to start off with all of my guests with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps us calm the nerves down a little bit, helps us get to know you in a rapid-fire way. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions in no particular order. It's a bit random. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, yeah? Uh, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang on. Wait for me to ask the question. Would you rather build out an idea in business or would you rather deliver on an idea? Oh, that's a tough one. I, mean, I enjoy both so much, but I think, you know, the first part of coming up with the idea is one of the funnest parts, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because different personality types like think different things. Some people love the idea generation process and bringing people together and then not executing on any of it. I'd work with a lot of people like that that are really, really creative, but not very good at executing. So we're going to make sure we get the right people in place for them to help them execute on it. That's why I ask. Yeah, no, absolutely. I find that the idea is great. That's such a great process. But then you kind of feel like the delivery is actually sort of almost a satisfaction at the end. Yeah, we actually, that worked. We, you know, we brought that together. It's fun. Do you prefer um, to work with larger companies or smaller ones? Uh, larger ones. Yep. Where's your favorite place in the world to live, mate? You've lived all over the world, all sorts of places. Oh, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. And I actually get this question quite a bit, but I don't think there's one specific place. And the reason why is that everywhere I've lived, there's always been something fantastic about it, Mm -hmm. but there's always something that's, there's something missing. There's a negative to it anyway. So, you know, everywhere has a great positive, like even you know, being here in Sydney and I'm, I'm about to relocate to the UK next week. So I know the things I'm going to miss about this place, but I also know the things that I'm going to get from being back in the UK. So yeah, it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. Is home where you hang your hat or is home where 
your actual home is. Yeah, no, home is where I hang my hat. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's the people that you're around, right? That's the yeah. people that make it nice for you. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Would you rather be in the office working away or out networking, meeting new people? <laughs> That's a good one. Out networking, for sure. Nice, nice. Would you say you're old school or new age? It depends on how you define new age, <laughs> but I'd say I'm progressive. Well, I can't see a hipster top knot underneath that hat you're wearing. So oh. <laughs> I, I, there might be a little bit of old school still in there. That's okay. <laughs> All right, last one. If you could go back in time and spend 10 minutes with anybody in history, who would that be? Wow, that's a really good question. You kind of have to start thinking, how far back do you go? But um, gosh, and then the disappointment. <laughs> if you didn't meet them, they're not. Who's the one that comes straight to mind? Who do you think of straight away? I think straight away, uh, Buzz Aldrin. I think that'd, that'd be awesome. Buzz Aldrin's still alive. Yeah, I know, but I, I, by the time I do get to meet him, he's probably not going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice one, mate. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, Max, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Yeah, sure. Quite a few, I think, as I put in the questionnaire. I guess I started my entrepreneurship career really when I was 18. So that was the first business I had. And there was a, a web development and design company. And this was at the beginning when the internet was kind of quite nascent. So it was easy to win awards, which was the good part. So you got recognition really quickly and there was not much competition. But I think one of the big key lessons that I got from that was actually key man risk. And effectively, I was a one-man band to start with. And the day that I decided to do something else, the business collapsed. There was nothing else. So I think that was one of my first big lesson, I think, in business was, you know, without building a brand and an actual, you know, foundation and getting the right people on board, you know, your business can quickly go sideways if you decide to remove yourself from that and pursue something else. I think the, the biggest, you know, go all in story for me was a business initially where some guys wanted to create a new private members club. And in a very traditional sense of bricks and mortars. And at the time I was living in Monaco and I was just thought, guys, we have so many of these already, you know, we're just kind of saturated and social networking was just starting. So I thought, well, how about we create something virtual instead? And mm. it was one that was already quite successful that was focusing on a global scene, which was called a small world. And then there were a number of others. There was one in New York called Carbon NYC and they were doing really successfully. And so we thought, well, we think there's a niche for us to create something very local. And so I went all in with these guys and we built this up. You know, within the first six months, we had a number of, of members. We charged a fee as well. So, you know, we were quite adventurous in terms of going, no, we, it's not about being free. We're actually, it was kind of a bit of a, a gatekeeping, if you want. We wanted to attract really high net worth individuals being where we were. So we started building that up and we, we started to get people quite quickly going, you know, once we had a few people, they were talking to their friends and they were like, oh, aren't you a member of this thing? And so all of a sudden you had that snowball effect of like people wanting to be part of this and they had to pay, I think it was a thousand euros membership fee a year to be part of it. So, you know, we quickly got a lot of success out of that. The social platform became really interesting. So we built this network up. We took actually an off the shelf platform initially and we customized it extensively. But as the social piece became 
you know, quite good and sticky, we started to realize that members wanted other things. They didn't just want a virtual world. They wanted a real world. So we started creating events around this. So the social media platform became a communication tool amongst members and for us to organize events for them to attend. And then from there, we started to do social selling. So we actually sold tickets to events through the platform Mm -hmm. and lifestyle experiences. So we partnered with a lot of of luxury companies. We partnered with, back in the day, it was called the Orient Express Group. They are now called Belmond, but they have all these luxury hotels across Europe and obviously the trains and we had private jet companies. What we were trying to do was not just go, yeah, here's 10% off or 20% off at Gucci or whatever it was. It was more creating an experience. So we had a team who kind of packaged all these things up and we would sell them through the platform. What was fascinating was to see if one member, a particular member bought something, we would actually tell the network, hey, you know, Richard has bought this. And all of a sudden, Andrew would see it and Melanie would see it and they would want it as well. And so we saw this network effect around selling things, which was phenomenal. And we focused a lot on the development of the platform. And I remember it was really interesting because we thought, you know, our members are on here quite regularly. And back in the day, you know, you'd have a browser open, but nothing would refresh. And we were like, well, if we want our people to stay longer and engage with the platform longer, we need this basically what became the feed or known as the feed now timeline back in the day to actually refresh. So we got the developers, we had this call with the developers, you know, saying we want this to refresh. And the guys looked at us and just went, why, you know, there's no point. And I always remember the guy said, the lead developer said, Facebook, don't do that. Why would you want to do that? And we just said, nah, that's exactly why we want to do it. So we created this feed that actually refreshed constantly and you got notified and we saw so much more engagement as well. So for me, that was, you know, when we first started getting customers on board was just such a successful moment for us. How long was it when you first got your customer? The development Uh, process mustn't have been that long if it was off the shelf. No, that's right. Yeah, the development, we took us, to really kind of get, and we kind of iterated as we went along, obviously, but our first version took us probably three, four months to actually get version one up. And then we invited people we knew to join initially. So we kind of tried to create this initial thing, but our first paying member after that was probably six months down the track, you know, and we build the network as well as a marketing tool to get brands involved. So They wanted to see, you know, well, what is this thing and, you know, how do people interact on it? So, you know, I, I spend my time between Paris, Geneva, London with my laptop going, this is what it is. Look, you know, this is how people interact. And that's how we actually, there was a lot of face-to-face meetings to get partners on board. You know, I think we grew that business. We effectively became a lifestyle business with a social network attached. Nice. But within two years, we grew that into a 5 million euro business. So. Wow. You know, that's been probably to this day my most successful all-in kind of thing. Yeah. And, and at first, we had no idea where we were going to go with this at all. Yeah. I think, you know, it was just like, it was a cool idea. And let's see if we could really focus on a particular market and see what happened. And from there, we started to grow the ideas around, well, we grew the ideas. It was very much kind of a life cycle piece because the life cycle was very short, if you want, initially when people were like on this network, but it's like, well, what is it really doing for me? It's not really doing much for me. So all of a sudden you saw a decrease in the level of user engagement and we go, well, how do we actually bring that back up? So that's where we started to go, well, let's build this lifestyle hook on it and partner with others and bring everything together. So the more we did that, 
the better we got engagement, the more successful we became. And that was really satisfying. And then, then we sold that to a French travel company three years down the track, basically. You say in there, you mentioned a minute ago, you were traveling around Europe a lot, going to a lot of meetings and doing yeah. that. Had you done that sort of thing before in business or was that a new learning experience here? Sounds like a giant hustle from one city to the next, one opportunity to the next, nothing better than a hustle. Yeah, no, total steep learning curve. Yeah, never really done that before. So, but it was really a case of going, who do we think would be great? And, you know, picking up the phone, sometimes it was an introduction from somebody, you know, LinkedIn was there, but people weren't really using it in that way yet. You know, it was more like, well, you know, can we reach somebody, you know, give them a, a phone call and they were, they were unfortunately not local. So it was like, well, you know, we have to go, you know, we'll have to go see them. Yeah. So that's, Did you ever find yourself sitting in the foyer of going into a meeting going, what is this? What are we doing? Did yeah. you bite off more than you could chew? Like it's something yeah, yeah. scary, but you do it anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. Massively scary. And what was really fascinating was in fact, how easy it was to bring these guys on board. And every time you went into this meeting, you were like, what are these people going to think? You know, it's just so scary. We'll never get this. And then often they were like, what do you want from us? Like you literally like, how much can we give you? And it was just like, well, it's not, we didn't make money off of our partnerships. We made money off of our members. So anything that our partners would give, we would basically forward on to our members. So anything that above an extra that the partner wanted to do was just an extra benefit to the member. So yeah, it was fascinating. But initially it was just, you know, I went in to see, I went to the Savoy Hotel and got, you know, basically that group on board and the Fairmont group on board. Huge and I remember brands, just... Man. They're massive businesses, huge brands. Massive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, huge. Yeah, and just went in and just, you know, got a meeting with the head of marketing there and just said, you know, this is what we do and here it is and showed it. And by the end of the meeting, I just thought, you know, that's it. I'm just going to go home. I'm never going to get anything from this. And they're like, yeah, that looks great. You know, we'd love to be part of this. You know, what what do you want from us? (laughs) What would you say to a, a young entrepreneur about to scale out their business? They've finished their product. They've got to go and have those meetings and they're feeling that, you know, sometimes you know, it's the classic e-myth, isn't it? Entrepreneurs are often really, really good at producing something, building a website, building an app, having a great idea. But when it comes to selling, they flatten their face. What would you say to somebody that was feeling like that? Yeah, for me, it's passion. So I think there's, there also comes a time where you think you need to have something that's perfect. So literally, I went in with version one of this network platform. Perfect. And it was nowhere near perfect. It was nowhere near where it eventually got to. But it was enough to show functionality and to show, you know, this is the kind of people we have on here. And basically, this is how people interact. And, you know, yeah, it, it wasn't wireframes, you know, so there was some graphic elements there, but it wasn't perfect. And it was definitely nowhere near finished. So I don't think the product necessarily sells to the customer mm-hmm. at that level, at that point in time in your business, it's really about the passion that you bring with it. And I think that was the thing is that's what I've learned. I think in everything that I've done since is, you know, if you come in there and you're really passionate about what you're doing, people really latch onto that and they, you know, they buy into your passion and therefore they feel like, wow, you know, you've got something, you're going somewhere, you love this. And clearly, you know, that builds confidence and people go great. Well, you know, if you're this enthusiastic about it, I'm, I'm happy to, to get behind that. Yeah, there's one thing that I'd probably add to it as well is it's along, it's in the same vein as passion, about same, same, but slightly different. I'd say authenticity. Um, yeah, when definitely. 
I think larger businesses are used to other businesses coming in and pitching. But when it comes to the the solopreneur or the entrepreneur with a small team and a great idea with passion and authenticity and really believes in it, that really kind of helps it to gather traction. Did you find that, did people care, like these big businesses care that you guys were just a small company or were they were like, yeah, it looks good. We want, want to be part of it. They didn't care. You know, I think there was probably a level of, there is always a level of care, I think, you know, obviously, but you know, by then we were a good, a good solid team. You know, we weren't like hundreds of people or anything else. I think at the time when we went out, we were five, six people. We were six in the team. So, so, yeah, it's solid. It's a good group. You know, everybody had their dedicated roles. And and so I think that that builds enough confidence that people go, yeah, it looks like you guys have it together. You know, had I been just by myself, I think, you know, and being like, Hey, I'm this one man band and this is what I'm doing. I don't think I would have had the same outcome. Uh, for sure. But I think authenticity is massive. And I, I have, you know, another story that kind of turned into a bit of a failure in the end, just, and that's on, that's on a people point. But I remember being in a meeting with another co-founder of our, of mine in this particular business in a VC meeting. And the VC just quickly sniffed out that he was just the questions. And it was fascinating to see the body language change where all of a sudden this VC decided, I'm not going to speak to this guy anymore. I'm just going to speak to Max and I'm just going to ignore him because I, he could just detect the bullshit. And I was just sitting here going, just thinking to myself, stop bullshitting. You know, people will just pick up on that. And mm. that's exactly what happened. So definitely to your point of authenticity, so important to just be extremely authentic. And I think unfortunately, when we get into that sales mode as entrepreneurs as well, we try and go have an answer for everything. Because we're trying to go, yeah, yeah, we can do all that. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. I think that's always wrong. And I think you just have to be able to go, actually, that's a really good point. I I don't have an answer for that right now. And we can come back to you with it. You know, we'll we'll go back and think about it or come back and see if that's possible and not, not try and you don't want to, you know, basically sell the skin of the bear before you shoot it kind of thing. So it's really important to be authentic at all times. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice one. Well, what was the thing that took you longest to grasp in that business? As a business owner, you're kind of like an octopus. There's like 859 things happening every 10 minutes. What was the hardest thing for you? I think the hardest thing was bringing members on board in this business was challenging because it put me really outside of my comfort zone. You know, I think one-on-one and I can, you know, that was easy for me. I could sell this one-on-one with people and, and that was nice, but for us to be able to scale faster, we organized these sort of member recruitment events. So we invited people we knew or who were already members and we, we tried and get them to invite other people. And then all of a sudden you're, you're pitching this to you know, 20, 30 people at a time. And these are people you really want. And they're very established people. We're you know, high net worth people and they're grilling you on this stuff. And it just was really difficult to try and get people over the line and go, you know, this is worth the membership fee and, and you should join. And, you know, you got a lot of feedback with like, well, my American Express Centurion card does this for me. Why, why do I need to join your network? And, and from the, the caliber of people, it kind of really put you off. And that was really tough. I think that was the, the most difficult is, is kind of interacting with those people at that level. And with so many of them together, that was, that was real hard. Were you selling from the stage? Yeah. Sometimes it was from a stage. Sometimes it was more sort of, you know, a big round table or, you know, that, that kind of a sit down dinner and walking around and, you know, yeah. Chatting with you. Yeah. 
yeah, customer acquisitions always a, a really, really difficult thing. If you look at the, and I think a lot of us in the digital space know the stories of Airbnb. Airbnb mm. was not doing so well. So the owners had to get out there with a photographer and go and take photos. There's plenty of people listing their properties, but the properties just looked terrible and nobody wanted to go and stay in them. So as soon as they got a proper real estate photographer in there, it was working a whole lot better for them. And there's yeah. a couple of dating apps that are out there as well that had done the same thing. They'd started off and they'd been, you know, swipe left, swipe right type thing was a good concept and everybody liked the idea of that concept. But the only way to actually really get some traction was to get in front of real life human beings and show the stuff to them. And when they'd done those things, they, it actually started to gather traction and do that. Was that acquisition mode for you? That's not scalable for you, but was, did that turn into something that was scalable or did you just keep doing that? Yeah. So that eventually you know, translated to once we got, I guess, a critical mass online, mm-hmm. it was easier to get you know, word of mouth referrals after mm-hmm. that. And, and that kind of grew itself. And then you know, we, we started using a fair bit of PR as well to attract and then you know, the, the sign-up process was kind of a get It was kind of on invitation, but you could actually fill out a, a membership form and then it was reviewed by a committee. So, you know, and to do that, you also needed to put down an existing member. So there, it was a referral system. So once we had enough members, it scaled faster organically nice. because there were enough people to refer others effectively. Do you remember what the number of critical mass was? Was it 500 people? Was it 100 people? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it, we found 350 was That's kind of that, many. no, it was that golden number for us. You know, I mean, ultimately, we didn't need that many members to have a, a, a viable business. So, mm-hmm. you know, we ended up with a thousand members, you know, and, and, that, and that was good enough. So, you know, at 350, that's when we started scaling up real fast, like it really accelerated. Yeah, it's a really good, my next question is about what would you say to a, person considering leaving their job and having a diving into the entrepreneurial world and you kind of answer it a little bit there by saying that you only need 350 customers and it doesn't sound like a lot but if you put 350 people in a room that's a lot of people you know and you have to talk to probably 3,000 people to get those 350 customers so it is a hustle but it's not that bad really so what would you say if someone was thinking about diving in and having a crack I think Obviously, you know, when we go through this a lot because obviously, you know, depending on where you are in your life as well. So, you know, I have three children, you know, up until recently, single income household uh, mm-hmm. being me. And so you kind of always go, I've got this income and this is doing well. Do I really jump ship and mm-hmm. go all in on something with full risk and, and, and what happens? So I think if you're younger and you don't have responsibilities, then it, yeah, I'd say, you know what? There's no job in the world that's worth you staying, sticking for and just yeah. go do it. I mean, seriously, you'll quickly find out, you know, you know, it might be two or three months down the track. And if you've got no traction, then yeah, go find another job. But if not, you will be so satisfied by having taken that leap that your life will just feel so much more purposeful that you're really doing something you really want and you're passionate about. And I think that's, that's really important. And I think if you are later in life, because I think, you know, a lot of people are kind of thinking, well, maybe I do this, but, you know, I do have responsibilities. It's always tricky. And the way I've approached it since is whenever we start looking at a new business, one, I wouldn't say don't do it alone. That's the one thing I've learned. Always find a partner, a co-founder, somebody that you can really build stuff with. And it might be somebody you're just sharing ideas with first and you 
draw stuff on napkins at you know when you're at the pub over a beer but that's the kind of person you want because you want to find somebody who's as passionate as you and who's really interested in in the ideas that you're coming up with and then i would say you do it as a you do it on the side initially and so that you're not really kind of it's not that scary of going and am I going to have to take my kids out of schools and, you know, sell the house and all that kind of stuff so that you, you can run it. And, you know, a lot of people go, Oh yeah, but you know, when do I do it? Well, I've done it where I've come home and basically the kids go to bed and from 8 PM till midnight, I'm working on this new project, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what it is. And so I think that's, you've got to have the commitment. And then initially, once you start to start building that traction, you will then eventually go, I'm getting somewhere with this and we are, you know, my partner and I, or my two or three co-founders, you know, we, we can actually divide up the load. We're building something that's really good. And I can finally put in my resignation and not have to, you know, worry that I've got all these other responsibilities that I'm not going to be able to be taken care of. So I think that's, that's the key is, is really kind of obviously understanding where you are, what you really want, and then going for it. And I think, unfortunately, what my experience I've done a bit of corporate uh, work and I think altogether about six years of corporate land, but effectively I met so many people who just didn't have the confidence. And I was just going, you guys are miserable where you are now. And you're talking to me about setting up your own business and go and do that. And you are just not confident enough in yourself to be able to go, I back myself. I know that I can find a client to do this and go out and do it. And you know, I think that's often also something that you just need have a bit more confidence, have confidence in yourself that, you know, you know what you're passionate about, you know what you want to do, you know that you're capable of doing it and giving it a go. I think that's an attitude that every entrepreneur kind of needs to have. It's beautifully said, mate. You know, I think perseverance is another really important trait as well. You know, if people have really good ideas, they want to have a go at it, they've got the confidence to do it and then they fail straight away. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, go again. And just persevere with it. And as you say, you know, eventually sure. it gets traction or it doesn't. And I think to your point, going all in doesn't mean being irresponsible. You can be yep. incremental in the way you can go all in just in your mind with your attitude and, and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean, you know, firing your boss and leaving your income behind and then not having an income to feed your family and things like that. You've got to take an incremental approach to that. Well, mate, you've been in the digital space for a very long time. I know that reading your bio, you started coding when you were a very, very young little tacker in back in the <laughs> old days at six or seven years old. How have you seen the digital landscape evolve and, and where do you, I know it's a big question. Where do you see the digital space going in the next five or 10 years? Because things just changing so rapidly. Does, does Facebook still exist in its current form? Does Instagram still look like that? Is Snapchat there? What's coming down the pipeline? What do you? Yeah. So in terms of what's happened, I think, you know, I've, I started coding when I was six on a Commodore 64. So, you know, in basic, coded in C, after that, C+. Yeah. And then when the internet rolled around, you know, we started working in HTML and then CSS and Java. And so I've, I've kind of seen that whole evolution. Um, you know, I remember, you know, first websites were on GeoCities. You know, it was back in 1996, 97. Careful, man, you dating um, yourself, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Carbon dating yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's been really fascinating. I mean, the internet itself, just how the profound impact that's had on absolutely everything, mm. you know, not just business 
communication, but society in general and how it's changed behavior and, and, and so forth. So I think, you know, the evolution of that and then the technologies that we've been building on top, you know, to your point of, you know, does Facebook still exist in its current form? I'm of the opinion that any digital business will always evolve. And if they don't, then they won't exist. It's like any website. I think, you know, I've had a lot of clients in, in the property sector. And what's really fascinating that the property mindset is very rigid because it's normal. It takes them five years to build something and that building doesn't change for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, in digital, it's like in 20 years, this entire thing will have pivoted five times, be a completely different business. We'll be doing something entirely different. It will look and feel completely different to what version one was. Yeah. I think we're going to just continue to see that because I think that's the beauty of digital is the ability to be agile and the ability to change things to actually make sure that we satisfy the user. We're here to make sure that we deliver on user expectations and user experience. So we will continue to evolve as the user's behavior changes based on technological impact and finding new ways to use that particular digital platform. I think, you know, you'll start to see those platforms continuously evolve. It'd be interesting a few years ago, I mean, especially going back to the social network piece, you know, niche social networks kind of disappeared eventually, Mm -hmm. right? So the business we started no longer exists. Um, Carbon NYC is gone. There was a social network for tennis fans called Tennister that disappeared, even though, you know, they even had a partnership with the ATP and they had all the live scores and everything else disappeared. Mm. And so you kind of go, will there be another social network? Like who in their rightful mind is going to take on Facebook, right? So, but then you see people like Instagram who all of a sudden go, yep, there's a niche somewhere of just doing images. Yeah. So I think, you know, people will keep being disrupted when somebody finds something else that, you know, us as, as human beings gravitate towards. What do we find engaging? You know, is it helping us solve an issue? Is it, is it helping us be, you know, is there some convenience attached to it? Or is it something that's fun and engaging that's, you know, entertaining? You know, I think that's where the whole Instagram success started off where, you know, we are fascinated by imagery. And we love taking photos of things. And so, you know, there was no real platform just dedicated to that. And that was really great to scale and became this massive platform. You know, Snapchat was fantastic that it was just, it was a message that would disappear. Mm. There was such a finite life to that post that was, I think that was really engaging, especially for the younger crowd who were just like, I don't know, I don't want to know what mom and dad, you know, what I don't want mom and dad to know what I'm doing, you know, and uh, I just want to, send my, you know, my secret messages to my friends kind of thing. And I think that's, that was the attraction to Snapchat initially. So I think we'll continue to see platforms develop. I think now though, with the ability to move data at the speeds that we can, with the infrastructure that's coming along like 5G and, and so forth, I think we're going to start to see, there's going to be a continued growth in physical tech more than the digital side. So, you know, when we think about AR and VR, and I think it's going to be a good, mix of digital and physical. And I think we're going to see an evolution of that. Obviously, you know, when, when Apple came out with the iPhone that was revolutionary, I think now we're going to start to see, you know, I think AR and VR are going to play a bigger and bigger role in our, in our daily lives. I think that's what we're going to see. I think we're going to see a lot in terms of image recognition when it comes to facial recognition for payment, for access, for identification. You know, so one of the startups that I had and, and you know, was an all-in thing for three years. And eventually, you know, we, we shut down for a number of reasons, one being people and the inability of 
people in that group being able to pivot and, and change direction was another big lesson. But, you know, we, we were focusing on, you know, the future in that case on in the wearable space, but in the convenience around identification, public transport, access to buildings and payments and being able to do all that quite simply. And, you know, we could see that the evolution is going to be probably biometric. So, mm-hmm. you know, people talk a lot about uh, implanting chips. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're just going to skip the entire implant thing unless it's going to really solve some sort of cognitive process that's happening. Mm-hmm. But to put a, a chip in your hand or anything else, that's totally pointless because we'll actually just recognize your face. Your Easier. face will become yeah. your ID. Yeah. You'll pay with your face. You're bored. I mean, Qantas are just trialing at Sydney airport, you know, your face becoming your passport. So mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen. I think biometrically, we're going to be able to do so many things without having to carry anything. We, we will be our own identification in the world. I think that's definitely going to be something we're going to see in, in 10 years' time. I think autonomous vehicles, all those things, I think are going to become the future that we're going to be, that's going to become normal, effectively. Yeah, it's a very interesting space. I have a slightly different perspective to you from a, a military angle, actually. When I was in the Australian Navy, we would work on technology on a guided missile frigate as a, as a combat systems operator. So I operate radar, sonar, electronic yeah. warfare equipment. We would work on the same gear that was really probably from the 1970s and 80s. I mean, it was upgraded, it was more reliable, it was everything like that. But you would sit there and you would watch the radar scope spinning round and round as these jets would come in at you on on a maritime strike mission and you would wait for the picture to update because the radar had to sweep right back around and suddenly the planes were a little bit closer to you or they'd disappeared because they'd gone over the land, the radar can't see them. And I've just seen in my lifetime that that technology has just completely gone and been replaced by something that doesn't require the radar to sweep around in a phased array radar where it's always on, it's always there. And the ability to engage a target at literally three or four times the range of the equipment that I had back in the 1990s, only 10 or 15 years later, those engagement, those missile engagements would happen three or four times the distance of what they did when I was there. But then the planes could engage you from two or three times the distance as well. So the, you know, that arms race is still going on. That's still happening. And I, I try and flash forward every now and then to 10 or 15 years time, you know, fast forward to 2030, where are we with that technology? Mm. What does it look like? I think that all of us are going to be walking around with artificial intelligence in our pocket, in our phone. And I think education becomes less kind of necessary because all of the world's information is right there with a sophisticated AI that can answer any question and solve any problem you ever want. And then the Mm. evolution of quantum computing, although it's in its infancy now, that's happening really, really quickly. And there's many people around the world working to solve those problems because that will revolutionize things. And as you say, the ability to communicate on the 5G networks and stuff that we don't already know about is just unbelievable. And I'm excited for the future. I'm not sure if Google is going to um, be, you know, the savior of humanity or be the actual death of us. I can't really decide. There's something in between both <laughs> of those things with artificial intelligence. It's pretty cool. What I do know is that the, the stuff that we see as consumers is, is the crumbs that fall off the military table because that's where all the development is taking place. Who yep. would have thought in, in 1996 when I was on operations with the Australian Navy, you know, fast forward, 10 years into the future at 2006 that there's an autonomous drone being controlled by somebody in Las Vegas, in Nevada, hitting targets in Afghanistan or in Iraq. It's like 
that's stuff of freaking science fiction, man. But it happened in 10 years. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I think we just take for granted where we are with technology now. And, you know, right. fast forward in 10 years, oh, man, that's unbelievable where we're going to be. It's incredible, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, I think today we go, ah, oh, that is science fiction. But in 10 years, it'll be like, well, that's normal. Why did you ever think any different? It's like, <laughs> yeah. Max, tell me about your, your current business and tell me about that new business because it's kind of cute. It's intriguing. I want to know what it is. Tell me what you're currently working on and what the future is. So currently, I mean, I, you know, going back to the, the responsibility part of being an entrepreneur, I, I have a consultancy that's been going for four years now and, and does very well. And effectively, you know, I'm just about to uh, set up shop in Europe, in the UK and, and, and grow over there for that side of things, which is good, bread and butter. But effectively, um, the new sort of startup that we're, we're working on now is called Space Coffins. And effectively- again for the listeners? Yeah, Space Coffins. <laughs> <laughs> and very much like you heard, we're actually going to put coffins into space. And the idea behind it is effectively, we believe that your greatest journey is the greatest thing that you can do for mankind's future. So- what we want to do with these coffins effectively is the ability for you as the person who wants to have one of these coffins is that you can choose the trajectory that you want to be shot into space at and go wherever you want. But your coffin will be full of sensors and data capturing uh, devices. And so what we want to do is as you're traveling through space, we want to capture all this information and beam it back to earth. And that data can then be used to kind of understand, you know, the universe better. So, Instead of just having one satellite, we're probably going to have a whole bunch of these little coffins, basically, or little, they're actually proper coffins, mm -hmm. uh, floating around in space in all these different parts of, of the universe and, you know, eventually creating this sort of mesh network of coffins floating around and, and sending back data. On the flip side, we believe that eventually, if you want eternal life, we're probably one of your best bets because no way on earth can anybody today tell you that they might be able to bring you back to life in the future. Whereas we believe that there's probably some far more intelligent beings out there that probably can do it. So if ever you're out in space, you probably have a, a greater chance, a greater chance of that happening. But uh, jokes aside, we, um, you know, there's also some continuity for other people. So currently, if you look at the, the burial industry, you know, the death, what is called the death care industry, we spend $450 billion worldwide every year on funerals. And effectively, you have two options. You get buried on the ground, right? Or you get cremated. And both of those options is pretty much you're forgotten. I mean, really, nobody knows you anymore and you're done. And so we, we kind of think you spend all that money to be forgotten. You know, there's probably a better way to spend that money to actually A, further mankind, but B, there's a legacy with us. So you'll be able to track any of these coffins online. So all of a sudden your granddad's gone, but I can look up to the sky and I can see him up there or I can look on my app mm -hmm. and go, Hey, there, there he goes. You know, he's, he's floating towards Uranus or Neptune or wherever. <laughs> and so you can, there's a legacy. People can actually still, your loved ones can still follow your journey basically beyond death. So I think, you know, there, there's a lot of that. And, and then what we've realized as well. So where we want to go with this is that obviously, you know, if you sign up to this, you might not sign up right away or you might sign up now, but you might not die right away. So we think that we have a customer lifetime of between two and 40 years. And so during that period, what we want to do is it's for people who are really interested in space. And so we're looking to create a fund 
around that will invest in space-related technology. And so, you know, the returns of that fund will probably pay for the coffin by the time you die. So, you know, it'll all be paid for because obviously it's not cheap to get, you know, a coffin into space. It's pretty heavy. Uh, so that's one part. But, you know, we're looking at other opportunities as well. So before that, you know, you might be interested in space tourism. We're going to do space-related events, you know, all sorts of things attached to, to this entire thing of this one coffin, this last journey of yours. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be special throughout that period. And who knows, you know, in the future, you know, five years, 20 years from now, maybe it's um, palliative care in space. We might have a space hotel or something and, you know, you'll go from there or who knows. So, Well, I but, think um, the future of space is understated and I, I don't think it's in the forefront of the media or just average people's minds of actually what's happening in the development of technology and how rapidly that technology has been developed. You know, you, you think of getting into space with a rocket and the old school way of getting up there, but that's all about to change where yeah. we have conventional aircraft that have different types of propulsion systems that will be able to get us outside the atmosphere. And that trip that you're about to go on to the UK, that's going to take you 29 hours to get from here to there. That's going to be reduced to something like 90 minutes, not even being the terminal longer than you will be on the aircraft that gets you out of the atmosphere in a ballistic trajectory like that. So access to space in the next 10 years is probably one of the biggest revolutions that we're all going to see collectively and that i think will become the norm where it takes you you know only an hour or so to get from point a to point b i can remember the space shuttle missions and watching uh that machine enter re-enter the earth's atmosphere at 25 times the speed of sound over the sea of japan and be back in florida inside of like 30 minutes and um, you know transiting the entire pacific ocean at mark 25 it's pretty insane and we're not far away from having the propulsion systems and the aircraft to actually be able to do that. So all jokes aside, space coffins aside, access to space is about to improve incredibly quickly. And that technology has been commercialized really, really quickly as well. So um, it's not such a far-fetched idea, actually. No, we're, we're very excited. I think there's another issue that we've discovered as well is that, you know, burial plots are actually... Um, there are not enough of them right now. So it's a major issue of actually finding places to bury people. And then you have, there are actually some, there've been some studies in terms of the decomposition and everything else of some of these materials that get put into the ground and it's not environmentally friendly either. So, you know, we, we feel that a space coffin solves these problems as well. So, you know, the universe is so vast that a few coffins floating around aren't, aren't going to bother anybody. And at least they'll, you know, there'll be sort of beacons of light beaming back data for us to understand what our future might look like. Nice one. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Max. That's a really kind of cool story and a, a very, very forward thinking view of the world. And we need more people like you to be thinking about things like that, which is not a really a, a pleasant topic to think about, but it's kind of cool. Tell me, mate, you're a busy guy with the kids, with the family, with business and stuff like that. What are your daily non-negotiables? What do you do every day to keep yourself sharp and focused? Yeah, so exercise, um, for sure, really important. Just keeps you awake, is what I find. (laughs) Um, I think so, exercise is key. I think um, reading, I read a lot. I think that's that's what keeps me up to speed on a lot of things. I, I consume a lot of media. And then networking, you know, speaking to other founders, other people in the industry, you know, bouncing off ideas. I think that always keeps you fresh. It kind of, it always opens up something and you're always learning. And I think that's really important. And those are non-negotiable. I actually spend, I put aside time every day to do those. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I would echo that loud and clear. Those three things are definitely on my list 
every single day. And I think they, for me, they're more habitual than they are non-negotiable. It just happens throughout my day because it's been such a big part of my life really for the last 10, 15 years of my life. So yeah, I'd, I'd echo that for sure. Well, Max, thank you so much for coming on the Go All In podcast. We really appreciate you sharing your story and, and your wisdom, mate. If people want to connect with you, where can they find more information about you and your businesses? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the, the best one. So, you know, pretty easy to find me there. And then any of the other businesses, uh, spacecoffins.com is, uh, is the one. You can check it out. There's, there's a landing page there for now. We're, we're about to do some changes there. But yeah, that's probably the best places. Cool. I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, just open up your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button for us because that helps a lot. And if you like what you've heard today with Max, if you could leave us a little review, that'd be great. And if not, that's good too. Leave us a review because we always like to improve on the show. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks again, Max, for coming on. We really appreciate talking to you and and maybe we can revisit that space coffins thing in a couple of months time as that business rolls out and progresses that'd be great awesome thank you very much for having me thanks mate see you soon bye cheers bye